Amen. And yeah, that's that beautiful. Well, good morning. And would you please join me in opening up a Bible on, to Psalm 145. If you're just joining us, don't have a Bible, would love for you to follow along with the Blue, Blue Pew Bible. And you can find Psalm 145 on page 524. And this morning, I want to talk about generations. We are in a time now where we recognize the naming of generations as mainstream in our society, uh, but that's a relatively recent trend in human history. The idea of naming a generation did not begin until the early 1900s, did not really become mainstream until after 1950. And you compare that today uh, when the kind of separation of generations by name is such a major aspect of our cultural life. Um, so yeah, this past week I got back from uh, Wisconsin, had a great trip out there with Rochelle's family. And as uh, we do each year, Rochelle and the kids extend their stay in Wisconsin until later on in the summer when I convince her to come home. And, uh, you know, it's always a little nerve-wracking, but eventually, you know, she at this point has always come home. Um, but uh, I was talking to her a couple of days ago, and they went to go visit her grandmother. And so the, those who went to visit was uh, Rochelle's mom, uh, Rochelle, and then one of our daughters, our three-year-old Lauren. And her grandmother is 97 years old. And so even just talking about how sitting in a room together uh, from, you know, somebody who's in their 90s to their 60s to their 30s down to age three. And, and Rochelle would tell you rightly that the most feisty ones in that group are the three-year-old and the 97-year-old, all right? Just kind of full circle. Um, but but we, we have this idea of the naming of the generations. And so I'm going to have a slide up there uh, that this is kind of the general breakdown of what the generations are. Uh, the greatest generation, the silent generation, baby boom, generation X, millennial, and generation Z, all right? So we're going to do this real quick, some participation. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird, all right? But if, if there's anybody in here, and I don't know if there is, but uh, who's in the greatest generation, born between 1901 and 1924, would you, if you're able, to stand? All right, like this is where Rochelle's grandmother would stand. This is where Carl Parshall, right, uh, would turn 100 last August before he went to the Lord, would stand. All right, next, uh, the silent generation from 1925 to 1945. If you were born in that stretch, would you please stand? All right, all right, amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. How about next, the baby boom generation, 1946 to 1964. Please stand. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. All right, and you can sit down, all right? After church, no one's allowed to ask who, how old someone is, all right? We just know their range. Um, next, Generation X, 1965 to 1980, would you stand? 1965 to 1980, yeah, about the same. All right, this is the generation I'm in, the millennial generation, 1981 to 1996, please stand. The millennials. All right. All right. You can have a seat. I think that one won, though. Just saying. All right. Just for the record. Um, and now Generation Z, 1997 to 2010. 1997 to 2010. All right. Generation Z. Yeah. 
You guys can have a seat. All right, we also have our kids with us, all right? So for kids, if you were born after 2010, so if you were born 2011 to today, stand, and you can stand on the pew, all right? I won't tell the elders, all right? Stand on the pew, 2011 and beyond. Yeah. All right, you guys can sit down. Now, I have to tell you, those who were just standing, um, I don't know what your generation's called, all right? Like, um, but we've made it to the end of the alphabet, all right? So I don't know what that means for you. I guess we'll find out. But that, that raises an interesting question. Um, who gets to name the generations, right? Like, is there a generation czar out there that just decides? Because they're, they're all kind of random. There's no real, like, it's not one, two, three, or A, B, C. Um, and, and so I kind of looked this up, like, who decides uh, what the generation is called that we all kind of come to know as mainstream? And, and Pew Research Center, reputable research firm, um, says this, listen to this, quote, no official commission or group decides what each generation is called and when it starts and ends. Instead, different names and birth year cutoffs are proposed. And through a somewhat haphazard process, a consensus slowly develops in the media and popular parlance. Right? Pew Research Center just said a somewhat haphazard process. Right? That's the process that we've kind of come to know what a generation is called. So in a sense, no one decides. And in another sense, everyone kind of has a role in deciding. Uh, but more importantly, why? Why, starting over 100 years ago, did this become an idea that we should start naming our generations? Like, why was it necessary? And then why, further, did it just catch on so well to the point where it is today? Um, if you look it up, it really comes down to the culture at large's concern for the youth in every upcoming generation. And the idea that we can kind of name and kind of categorize this generation, we'll have a better handle on being able to assimilate them into culture. And the church in the 20th century played a pretty prominent part in that role, in that job. Um, concern over the growing apathy and behavior of the youth and turning away from God. That has been talked about again and again in every generation over the last hundred plus years. Uh, coming out of that, organizations have been founded that are still prominent today. Um, one is called the Young Men's Christian Association. And you're like, what's that? It's better known as the YMCA. It began in the early 1900s to address this problem. And then in the back half of the 1900s, organizations like Young Life or Youth for Christ emerged, all of which, again, are still around and prominent today. And so there's been kind of a mixture of religious and secular concern for the next generation wanting to assimilate them into culture, and it grew to become this own, you know, its own thing, where, again, today, uh, you can't go a day without finding another think piece published online about the generations. It's become this publishing mammoth that shapes the way we view ourselves. Which is why, at a certain point, maybe you share this um, thought, I think naming them has kind of turned into something that's maybe not that helpful. Because there are broad stereotypes associated with every named generation, and they all have some truth to them. But they can become these self-fulfilling prophecies where we start behaving a certain way because we're seeing online that our generation is supposed to act this way. Right? So I start conforming to what I see everybody else in my generation seems to be doing according to this kind of publishing uh, giant that's out there. And then we start living a certain way because we think we're supposed to be living a certain way. Does that make sense? 
Like, I think it's gotten to a point where it actually might not be that helpful. So, why are we talking about this? Um, as Christians, as the church, one reason why we should care about this conversation is because the Bible talks a lot about generations. For starters, think about all the genealogy passages starting right away in the book of Genesis seen throughout the Bible, where it's just a passage of just a long list of names. And if you're ever in a situation where you've had to read one of those passages in public, you start getting like a fast heartbeat because you can't pronounce like a third of them. And you just got to go down the line and there's no escape. You just got to go. All right. Tip, just say it with confidence, man. All right. Just say it with confidence. No one will question you. Um, I love what Jen Wilkin says about these kind of genealogy passages, which if we're honest, we tend to kind of skip over and then get, you know, past them. And this quote be on the screen. She writes, in the genealogies, God speaks to us of his attention to the individual. He sees us not as a teeming mass of humanity, but as individual names and faces and personalities, each with their own stories that play into the larger story of redemption. No plan of his can be thwarted. Each name is a blade of withered grass, but his eternal purposes endure. Think about that the next time you come across a genealogy passage. So the Bible talks a lot about generations, and it talks a lot about passing the faith from one generation to another. The primary importance of the people of God is to pass down the truth of who God is and what God has done. It's going to be the most vital aspect of every generation. Because as the saying goes, the church is always just one generation away from extinction in any culture. The church will never die, the Bible promises that, but the church in a given culture could grow extinct if one generation is not faithful in passing along the faith. So this morning we begin our summer sermon series in the book of Psalms. Last Sunday, we finished our six-month trek through the Paul's letter to the Galatians, and now we turn to the Old Testament for the rest of the summer, beginning with Psalm 145. Um, the majority of the year, we sing the Psalms, and occasionally throughout the year, including the summer, we now preach through the Psalms. And Psalm 145 will not only emphasize the necessity of passing down the faith to the next generation, but it's also going to help shed light upon what is it you should pass down. So with that said, we're going to kind of go a few verses at a time here and unpack it, starting with verses 1 through 4. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. If there's one thing you remember from this morning, if there is one thing you can pass down to the next generation, both now and however long the Lord has you here on earth, may it be a robust theology of and practice of praise. Praise of a God who is great and who does great things. 
this kind of praise is not just in the morning gathering and the weekend that we can pr- sing songs of praise, although as we did this morning, to hear this place filled with songs of praise will move you. It includes that, but it extends far beyond that. It is a life of praise. A life of praise that's not just contingent on what God has done for you, what he's given to you, what blessings you're currently experiencing, but it's praise that extends far beyond any circumstance because it's praise foundationally rooted in who he is and what he has done. Two questions for you this morning. Seriously, do you love yourself enough to make a practice of praising God? Second question, do you love those who will come after you enough to make a practice of praising God? It's an interesting note about Psalm 145. It is the final one written by David. David, who was king over Israel, wrote half of, 75 of the 150 Psalms, if not more. But we know he wrote at least half. And of all the topics and genres that David wrote about, what is the final note we see from him in the Word of God? A strong, forceful song of praise to his king. Uh, James Boyce, the, the 20th century pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philly, said this, quote, Psalm 145 is indeed a monumental praise psalm, a fit summary of all David had learned about God during a long lifetime of following hard after the Almighty. The longer you follow God, the harder you pursue the Almighty. In the midst of a life that is filled with sorrow and joy, a life full of mess-ups and victories, As you persevere to the end, the more you will praise. Notice even just the elevation of praise that David can almost hardly contain himself in the first three verses. Verse 1, he says, I will praise you, I will exalt you, extol you, my God and King. Don't overlook that. David at this point is the most powerful man in Israel. And yet he never forgot who the true king was. His praise for God did not wane and lower as he got more powerful and influential. We should take note of that. Be careful. If the Lord gives you giftings that leads to you gaining power in this world, influence in this world, riches in this world, be careful that your praise does not wane as you get more powerful. David is king of Israel, and he knows and never forgot who his king was. Verse 2 then, every day I will bless you. So I will praise you. And then verse 2, elevated, every day I will bless you, right? This is the daily vitamin of one who is following God. Not just for Sunday, not just for special occasions, but rather not a day goes by. Why would we let even a day go by where we are not able to praise him? Every day I will bless you. And then the second half of verse 2, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Do you see the buildup? I will praise you. I will praise you every day. I will praise you every day, forever. And then the segue to verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. 
how do we primarily pass the faith to the next generation? If we can assume we all want to do it, how do we do it? I think it begins with, we praise. The next generation sees us, praise. They hear us, praise. Uh, You've likely heard the phrase that more is caught than taught. Have you heard that? It's generally talked about in kind of parenting circles that more is caught than taught, but you could apply that to any um, position of authority, those who are kind of submit to somebody who is in authority. More is caught than taught. That children learn more from what you do than just what you say. So yes, teach your children, but don't just assume that what you teach them is going to be the primary thing that they absorb. What they're going to absorb is your life. They're going to catch on and notice, and they notice a lot more than we think they do. More is caught than taught. And so when we praise him every day, it molds generations behind us, both in our families and in our faith families within the church. Perhaps you do have this desire. Perhaps you struggle to know what does that look like. Maybe you did not grow up in a home or a church where you caught praise. Maybe that is foreign to you. The idea of what would we do on Sunday? What's this look like at home? I don't know how to do that at home. What do we praise him for? What do we want to pass along? This is where Psalm 145 is going to show us a framework. This is a fourfold framework that I first saw and got from, again, James Boyce, who I just quoted. I'll name them all up front, and then we're going to just walk through them one at a time. We praise God for he is great, he is gracious, he is faithful. And he is righteous. What do we praise him for? Starting with number one, he is great. And we're going to go back to Psalm 145 and read verses 5 through 7. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Number one, he is great. Verses five through seven flow from David's line that we read earlier in verse three in which he uses the variations of the same word to describe God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Grace Church, your worship of God is the only thing in this world you can't overdo. Do you know that? It's the only thing you can't overdo. Everything else in this world, it requires moderation. Even the good things in this world, your family, uh, your children, your, your work, your love for sports or different hobbies, your love of food and drink, good things. If we're not careful, they'll consume you. The most dangerous false gods in the world today are gifts that we turn into gods. The most dangerous idols are the things that God has given us as a gift and we've taken it and tried to make it into a god. A faithful, loving spouse, man, it is such a great gift and such a terrible god. Children are great gifts but terrible gods. Uh, having a job that you just love going to every day, being able to wake up and be like, I can't wait to get to work. I can't wait to go to work. That is an awesome gift that not many people are able to say. But work is a terrible God. 
Yet when it comes to praise and worshiping God, you don't have to play it cool. Do you know that? You don't have to moderate. You don't have to check yourself. It is the only thing in this world that does not need to be lessened. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Don't play it cool. You don't have to. You know, C.S. Lewis, um, the, the author of the, the Narnia series, as well as uh, many apologetic books about Christianity, he talked about how before he was converted, he really struggled to accept the fact that, um, that God commands his people to praise him. He's like, I, it, was just, it was just hard for him. He felt like God was some kind of tyrant or some kind of insecure leader that needed praise, commanding his subjects to pay tribute to him to make himself feel better about himself. He said, I couldn't get my mind there why God would command his people to praise him until after he came to know Christ personally, he was able to see and experience that God commands his people to praise him for his glory and our good. It is for our own good that God commands praise. Why? Because God is God. And we are not. And when we see something that fills us with joy, we praise him as an innate response from deep within. Uh, he writes this. Again, quote will be on the screen. Quote, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. When we see something that makes our heart want to praise, like we, we have to externally praise in order to complete that which we're feeling. It is painful to see something you want to praise, but have to stuff it. It's not good for us. And so everything in this world that we praise, think about this weekend, holiday weekend, whatever plans you got, what are different things you might be praising for this weekend? Uh, freedom, uh, beauty, victory, peace. All of that praise food and drink and family and time together. All that praise is good praise in that it gets rolled up to God as the one behind every good thing. Everything worthy of praise in this world is a stream that eventually flows into the ocean of God's character. And the peak of the greatness of God are, verse 5, his wondrous works, verse 6, his awesome deeds, verse 7, his abundant goodness. And then there's a phrase, if you still have your Bible open, at the end of verse 5 that I want to spotlight. He says, I will meditate on these things. I will meditate on your greatness. I find it fascinating over the last several years, especially among, call it the millennial generation and generation Z, not limited to that, but especially seen in that, how the practice of meditation in those younger generations has skyrocketed skyrocketed in popularity, that the, the same generations, think about this, that seem to be uh, becoming increasingly less affiliated with religion and the church, including Christianity, are meditating more than any other generation. But the problem is not meditation. The problem is a, what you could call a secular, humanist kind of meditation that focuses on self. Meditation that seeks to, um, to, to get in touch with your realest self, while biblical meditation focuses on the one who created the self. But meditation, it's a good word. 
Meditation is a biblical practice. We should not alienate the practice of meditation. We should rightly orient it to its intended purpose. To stop and fixate our thoughts on him. Meditation is a form of praise. So praise includes singing and corporate singing like we did this morning, we do each week. Praise is more than proclaiming the word of God in a sermon. Because praise is not about the form of expression of the one who is praising. Praise is about the one, about the one who is being praised, right? So being silent and meditating on the goodness of God. Be still and know that I am God. That is silent praise. And if you do make a practice of that, you know that is powerful praise. Now, when the Psalms speak of the awesome deeds of God towards his people, at the top of mind was God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It is the kind of central hub of praise throughout the Old Testament. But we now on this side of the cross, the cross in which we boast and above all else, which Pastor Joe preached on last week, the cross is now our central hub of praise. Because it is the deliverance from sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the foundation of our praise. His awesome deed of giving his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. David says here, testify this to one another. Let one generation commend this to those behind them. Brother, sister, let others see you praising not as a way of performance, but as a way of life, as a practice. Parents, have you told the story of salvation that the Lord has worked in your life to them? Testify. Children in the church should know at a certain point how the Lord saved them. And, and based on age, like give the appropriate amount of detail, but share how, how, you, they, how he saved you, he, how he delivered you from darkness and brought you into the light. Commend his works from one generation to another. Praise him for he is great. Let's keep going. Verses 8 through 12. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercies over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Number two, what do we pass along when we pass on the faith? Number two, he is gracious. Verse eight is an echo of Exodus 34, verse six which is one of the most monumental verses in the Bible because it gets echoed throughout the rest of the Bible. Exodus 34, reminder of the context there. Um, Moses was on top of the mountain meeting with God. The nation of Israel had just rebelled against God. One of the most horrific uh, happenings, tragedies of the Old Testament had just happened. That when Moses was on the top of the mountain the first time, they formed a golden calf. They began to worship a false god over the true God who had just freed them from slavery in Egypt. Moses interceded for Israel that they might not be destroyed for their sin. 
And then Moses asks to see the glory of God. And God says, you can't see my glory, but I will pass by you in a cloud. And when he did, he revealed this to Moses, verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on his children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If your kids ever ask you a question or something along the variation of what is God like? Who, who is God? Why do we do all this? Why do we go to church? Why do we praise? Why are we doing devotions around the dinner table? What is God like? Maybe a, a uh, somebody who's searching the faith, who is wrestling with this in their own minds, and they're older, and they're asking you, like, who, who is God to you? Exodus 34, 6. No better place than God in his own words revealing who he is and what defines him. And this verse will be echoed throughout the rest of the Bible, again, including here, quoted in Psalm 145, the Lord, he is gracious. His grace is perhaps the most surprising attribute of all. Uh, maybe you could get your head around the fact and fathom that God is all-powerful because he created all things. That maybe makes sense. That he is all-present. That he's in full control and nothing happens outside of his will. But he is also gracious. And he rules his kingdom through loving goodness. That is surprising because how often do we define and talk about strong leaders uh, in our day-to-day? -day? How do we define a strong leader? Think about in your life, the company you work at, your friend group, your family, uh, athletes, celebrities, somebody that you would say, this person is a good leader. What would make you say that someone else is a great leader? How would you define that person? You often think about, if you're like me, the kind of person who gets things done who accomplishes much, who's at the top of their craft, the kind of person who can command a room, the kind of person who could exert his or her will on others. But I ask you, how soon would you speak of their willingness to extend grace? A strong leader in this world, somebody who you think is a strong leader, how soon in your list of attributes as to why they're a strong leader would you talk about their extension of grace? How soon would you bring up their seemingly endless well of steadfast love? That is why God's grace is so surprising. That is what makes God, God. Not only that he's all-powerful and sovereign, but he is defined by grace. The reality, when you first see it in your heart, that you didn't first move towards God, he moved towards you. And we praise him, for he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. All right, we've got to keep going. Plugging along Psalm 145, it's got more for us. Let's pick it up in verse 13 and read to 16. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The word upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and give them their food in due season. 
You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Number three, why do we praise him? What are we trying to pass along? That he is faithful. An aspect of passing down the faith to the next generation is being honest with the fact that sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we doubt. The Christian life is not doubt-proof. The true Christians, the most mature Christians, however you would define that, are not doubtless. We need to look no further than the author of this very psalm, King David himself, who struggled often with doubt. Psalm 13 begins with this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? We face circumstances. You perhaps are facing one of these circumstances today. Whether it be an internal struggle, whether it be an external trial, or an external trial that leads to an internal struggle, and we doubt. If you think about it, what are you doubting in that moment? Most of all, I think we doubt his faithfulness, meaning, will the Lord do what he has promised to do? Sometimes the doubt you experience is fleeting. It comes and it goes relatively quickly. Sometimes this doubt is deeply embedded in your soul. I can say personally, the things that make me doubt most often are struggles with my own sin and sinful nature, struggles with my own flesh, and the propensity of temptation that looms over me, that accuses me. I also struggle with the suffering of those who seem to be innocent, suffering of children most of all. I struggle to understand why faithful couples who are strong in the faith struggle and sometimes fail to get pregnant, while at the same time, on average, 70 pregnancies an hour are getting terminated across the country. struggle with that. And so we are never far from doubt. And therefore... We must never be far from preaching to ourselves that he is faithful in all of his words. Just look at the assurances given in those few verses, 13 to 16, that he upholds all who are failing. He raises up all who are low. He provides food. He opens his hand towards us. He is faithful. For all the division and hateful rhetoric there is in our world today amongst people who see each other as enemies, there are some baseline, foundational things that we all need in this world just to see another day. We all need food, and we all need water, and we all need shelter, and we all need health just to see another day. But we know, the people of God know, that above all, what we need most from God is God which is why his son was the greatest gift. Paul writes the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20 to a church that is suffering, a church that is just under a weight of suffering. He writes this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
all of his promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. Praise him. Pass along the praise for him that he is faithful. All right, last one. Let's read the rest of the psalm. Pick it up in verse 17. Go to the end. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Last one, number four. He is righteous. He is righteous. Martin Luther, the famous theologian and pastor at the forefront of the Reformation in the 1500s, says that it was the phrase, the righteousness of God, in Romans 1.17, that the Holy Spirit used to open his eyes and heart to the gospel. That up to that point, and he was a priest, he always saw the righteousness of God as this, that those who are righteous will see God. Meaning, those who live a good life according to his word, those who are devout and disciplined, those whose good works will outweigh their bad works at the end, they will see their reward. He always thought that is what it was meant, that the righteousness of God will see him. But then he understood by the Spirit revealing this to him, that the righteousness of God is not a reward to earn, but a gift to receive. Our salvation is not defined by our obedience. It is defined by our acceptance of his righteousness for us. And David writes, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. To call on God, empowered by the Spirit, is to acknowledge, finally, that you cannot save yourself. It's to get past the place of trying to cut deals with God. God, if I do this, will you do that? If I do this, I promise I'll do this. Will you come through for me here? And if I do enough of that, if I cut enough deals with God, in the end, it will work out for me. To finally get past that and see that it's not just that you have done wrong in your life, but hear me, your life is wrong. And you stand in judgment before him. And you cannot get yourself out of that place. And at this moment of surrender, your weeping turns to rejoicing when you see that he chooses to not hold your sin against you, but rather covers your sin with the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. So call on him and receive this gift of salvation. I want to be honest, it's going to cost you everything. And you might lose comforts in this life. And it won't be easy to follow Jesus. But the moment you see Christ as your righteousness is the moment you realize that losing everything in this world is worth gaining Christ. And in verse 20, the second to last verse, we are soberly reminded that those who do not follow Christ will be destroyed. Not unjustly, not unfairly, but justly. 
for those who rebel against him. I remind you back to the verse in Exodus 34 that gets echoed throughout the Bible that the Lord is indeed slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, but, did you catch it? He will by no means clear the guilty. The way to salvation is not by behaving better or doing better, having, Christian, having your parents who are Christians or attending a church once in a while, maybe even regularly. That's not salvation. It is the repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. And those in the room this morning who have placed their faith in Jesus have had their eyes opened to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And they have counted the cost of following Jesus and have gladly submitted their lives to him for his glory and their joy. And if you have not made that decision, we would implore you to consider it. We would love to talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Christ and put your faith in him. And then the final verse, and we close with this, is an invitation to us all. Let it be true of us in this church, regardless of the name of your generation, regardless of when you stood up, regardless of all the stereotypes that get put into your generation, may it be true of us that we all submit to the powerful name of Jesus. And let us commit to the most important thing we can pass down from one generation to the next, today and forevermore, an authentic, robust practice of praise. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you first and foremost for who you are, Lord. And Lord, we are grateful for all the blessings that we have and that you have given to us, Lord. One that we have shared in common of being able to live in a country that, where we are free to worship in the way our hearts desire, Lord, and everybody else is as well. And we are grateful for that, Lord. That is a gift for us. But our God is in you alone. We praise you for who you are. For you are great, and you are gracious, and you are faithful, and you are righteous, Lord. And I pray that our lives would be marked by a life of praise, not to perform in front of others, but as a way to practice the way of life you created us to live that will be caught by the generations behind us in our families and in our church family. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we give you all the glory this morning. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand, respond in song together before we take the Lord's Supper.